Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Wednesday, May 26, 2021. I'm John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary. With me, as always, associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. Senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Um, so... I'm 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 gonna make I'm gonna make an a, an existential request uh, of our of our listeners. Um, uh, we've been doing this d- podcast daily. We we did it twice weekly until I guess March of uh, 2020. We've been doing it daily ever since. It's now you know the last week of May in 2021, and uh, you know I guess it's now part of our brand that we are a daily podcast. Um, but should we remain a daily podcast? I say this because we convened this morning, um, uh, a couple of minutes ago, uh, and, um, couldn't, we were like, what what are we going to talk about today? And obviously there are topics that we will talk about constantly and talk about all the time, right? We talk about where we are with the pandemic, talked about every day about, uh, about Israel, um and uh and and the rise in anti-Semitism and all of that. Um but I, I don't know, uh, guys, what do you think about this question of whether we have there is there will be enough going on for us to convene this conversation on a daily basis, you know, for for the foreseeable future or 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 forever. What do we think about it? Yeah, what do you think about it? Well, you know, in a way, I, I think it would be nice if there ceased to be enough going on for us to talk about. I mean, because um, part of the w- what's provided the fodder for daily discussions like this um, is the pandemic, but not just the pandemic itself, but the sort of the, all the upheaval that sort of um, arose around it and in that year that ensued and you know my great fear you know for the country is that that doesn't go away even when the pandemic does so um if much of that went away leaving us with uh fewer and fewer things to talk about that would that would be a good thing it's a a good point i'm thinking about it from the perspective of a producer and from a producer's perspective the show just doesn't end because there's nothing to talk about figure it out (laughs) daily radio show the audience right. is there. They're ready for you. Figure something out. The talk <laughs> line doesn't go away just because the, the hostages are back. The tough, the tough love from Noah. I just have to point out that this was all started not with a lot of you know thoughtful planning, but kind of a, as a, a in, in part a, a mental health exercise for all of us in lockdown in our various locations to be able to see each other and talk to each other every morning. And and that I I would hate to give that up because I enjoy that so much, especially as someone who right. isn't in the New York office as, as often as you guys. Um, but I, I'm kind of leaning towards Noah. I mean, I can just continually hold hostage our audience with the threat of playing my bassoon, and that's just going to get them that's saying, right. "No, no, no, please go back to talking about the teachers' unions." <laughs> well, the sad no, the saddest part is you could play the bassoon. That would be exciting if we were a video podcast. You could actually show your aikido moves. There you go. Which <laughs> really, actually, would be something <laughs> to see. Otherwise, this is a very, very uh, flat visual. Uh, people do say sometimes, "Oh, we should." We should we should put it up on YouTube and all this. And believe me, you don't want to see this on YouTube. I was actually thinking about this last night because um, uh, the the day school that my my son goes to had its benefit last night, and it was a virtual benefit. 
And the thought of actually zooming in to a virtual benefit, uh, which I guess means you would like put on a tie and then you would like pour a glass of wine and hold it in your little box. Hmm. Where, what was, was, I had an almost physical revulsion from, from this idea. I have spent, as we all have, too much time on these screens over the last year, year and year and a half. Um, uh, they're nightmarish, uh, how kids, uh, have managed, how my own kids have managed to live through zoom schooling. I, I, I don't know. And they frankly haven't lived through it all that well when the, uh, my kids are actually in school, mostly unlike Christine's. Um, but, uh, you know, it's just, you don't want to see us. And I, I never, again, this is part of the whole, is there going to be art about the pandemic after the pandemic? I never again want to see any depiction of the world where there are people in boxes talking in meetings. I, 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 there were a couple of decent versions of it. There was the parks and recreation pandemic special. That's about all I can think of. If I never see six people together on a on a on a screen or 10 people or 25 or you know screen after screen uh that will be too soon for me i see all and i i have this thought every time i see something like publishers weekly where they somebody's selling a 2020 pandemic book i'm like who is the audience for this prior to february of 2020 the spanish flu was called the forgotten pandemic we, everybody suddenly were, they were like, really? There was a, an epidemic in, in the 50s? There was an epidemic in the late 60s? I don't remember that. Because you forget intentionally. You want to forget. Who wants to remember this last year? Every time I, I tried to think about the last year, it goes through my mind in a, in a montage, like an, an 80s workout montage. that happens in 16 seconds. I remember three things that occurred. The rest of it is an absolute blur. It has bl- been blocked out like, like a childhood trauma. I mean, uh, believe me, uh, you know, a lot of us have had experiences that we want to put down the memory hole, uh, family crises, various other kinds of things that we've had to live through in this incredibly awkward, stilted way. Abe and I have watched uh, New York City, uh, you know, which uh, 10 years ago, just a decade ago, was the glittering jewel of, of urban achievement, uh, not only in the United States, but conceivably anywhere in the world at any time in history. And we have watched it descend into, I wouldn't exactly say a maelstrom or a hellhole, but it's a, a, a shabby, sordid place now, or Manhattan is at least. And, and yeah, it's coming back to life and there's things happening, but the, 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 the heart and soul of this place was punched in the gut, uh, just to, add ridiculous metaphors together in a horrible melange here. Um, If you can add things into a melange, another horrible use of the English language. Uh, And, you know, I like, I I don't need to, I don't need to constantly be revisiting this. One hopes that we can emerge from this and, you know, change up, I guess the fear. And I think maybe this is why, so many people are so livid at the continued, a lot of people I know and people who listen to this program and all this 
are livid at the continued masking of the fully vaccinated and all of this, which is we need to we need this period to be over. We don't need landmarks. There was nothing about it that was good. There is nothing about it that we want to keep. And this whole monologue that we keep hearing about, how, well, it was good for the, you know, socially awkward or, you know, the, the, the people who are, who are shy, you know, uh, people who are, have, 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 have social anxiety, uh, the, you know, the pandemic was, was, was really, really good for them. Well, I, I, I don't see how, uh, a, a world that allows you to indulge your anxiety rather than try to deal with it, cope with it, and overcome it, or at least figure out how to manage it, is a psychologically or you know or a practically better place for anybody. Not only those who are socially anxious, but those who aren't. Well, that's like it reminds me. You know, sometimes this question comes up, or you'll see uh, pieces written to the effect of. I learned some interesting things about myself during the pandemic or what I learned about myself during the pandemic. And um, I find all of those to be really flat and unconvincing because you don't learn about yourself in isolation. Um, you don't, I mean, yeah, it's trying. It's, it's, it's a sort of, it's, a, it's been a hell as, as, as we've said for, for people in various degrees, varying degrees, but you actually sort of make strides and grow and become someone um, by engaging with the world and interacting with other human beings. That is when you learn things about yourself. That is when you progress. That is when all sorts of interesting things happen. Um, it just doesn't happen in isolation. Yeah, well, there's, there's also the problem that, and I'm already seeing this too, in the sort of big, big thing cultural pieces about some of our ongoing uh, continuing social challenges, for example, crime, where now there's a kind of revisionist effort underway to make everything uh, pin blame for everything that's going on uh, structurally, for example, in cities on the pandemic. It's like, well, this wouldn't have happened without the pandemic. We would have had this, this wonderful George Floyd protest moment, but without the violence, were it not for the pandemic. Yes, the pandemic did, did exacerbate certain tensions and people's need to kind of release some pent up feelings. But I think it's also dangerous for us to, to it, it relieves us of the responsibility of looking at some of these challenges that were, that were already underway pre-pandemic. And so in that sense, I think it's another reason to get past the pandemic phase and get back to looking at what, what challenges we face socially. You know, there's also this horrible rhetoric that is largely used, uh, you know, by, by progressives, but I think is absolutely monstrous that we can't go back to the way things used to be. You, you know, I guess fundamentally, it's the message behind Biden's slogan, build back better. But I mean, people do say explicitly, we can't go back. We need to take this period and make something, you know, have a we need a better society a fairer society a more equal society all of that and you know what if this if the idea here is what we need to do is somehow say boy you know what this pandemic was really a growth experience for all of us with 600,000 people dead in the United States alone and apparently now you know India potentially on the way to a million to 2 million dead uh, we don't know what the death toll was in China, um, and we now have, I think, even more reason to believe that the death toll must must have been far greater and far more horrifying than we than we know. Um, 
there's something morally depraved about about that. And you know, it, it does happen at moments of like nightmarish horror that people say things like, Well, you know what? They they you know, they uh they, they took down the twin towers we're going to build them back and we're going to make it better. But you know what? It turned out that was actually a, a fantasy because the building that was finally put up after 10 years of errant nonsense down, down at ground zero is it is an insignificant, uninteresting piece of construction and the fights over ground, you know, if we had just done what people said we should have done after, which is literally build back the World Trade Centers as they were, that would have been a better outcome than the outcome that finally took place. But this this is an important point, and this is why we're at a crucial moment for conservatives right now. Forget Democrats, forget Republicans. If you have a healthy respect for institutions, a healthy respect for the past, um, and, and, a, and a, a need to preserve it and pass those uh, that legacy on to the next generation to teach it to 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 have visible reminders of it that's why conservatives need to have a better message and, and and more energy in responding to exactly that john because i think the 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 revolutionary impulse is really strong now and a lot of people who otherwise wouldn't have entertained it are because of the we're coming out of this pandemic time and the uh, yeah the revolutionary impulse on the on the, on the left is it has that never let a crisis go to waste quality on the one hand, but it also has this quality I keep seeing repeatedly. I've mentioned it several times uh, with these cultural sort of these lions of our culture from uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones to Barry Jenkins, the director of Moonlight and the Underground Railroad to Mara Gay, who is a, you know, who, who uh, coordinates Metro coverage for the New York Times editorial page. Uh, African-Americans, people of color, all of whom uh, have taken their uh, celebrity, their prominence, uh, and the the fact that they are uh, universally lionized, uh, winning awards, getting jobs, getting millions of dollars, all of that to say America is a terrible place. I mean, Barry, Barry Jenkins said in making this show that he has just made, The Underground Railroad, he realized the real message of it is that America was never great. And it's like, okay, that's really wonderful. America was never great. You grew up as a poor kid in Liberty City in Miami. You're not, you're 40 years old. You directed an Academy Award winning film in Moonlight and you got $150 million to make the Underground Railroad. Yeah, this country really sucks for you. This country has been so awful to you. You're a gay black man living in the United States uh, from a poor neighborhood and you shot to the summit of not only of your business, but of American culture. And from that great height, you are taking a dump on the country that gave you these opportunities. And Well, and we, sh- we should also, but we should call out the populist right for something similar, right? That the idea that someone like Donald Trump, who, who did quite well thanks to his family's money, used that to argue and tell, you know, people struggling uh, on another side of the political spectrum that they, they too were living in a terrible country that only he could uh, fix. I mean, they did at least hark back to a previous mythological age where everything was great. They were going to make it great again. But that impulse, we do see it on both sides. And that's where 
that's the even more dangerous in my view. If it was just coming from the left, it, I would be less concerned because right. I think reasonable people would respond right. reasonably down the line, but it's coming from the right as well. Well, it's this whole idea that, you know, patriotism or whatever is conditional. It's just simply conditional on whether or not your people feel like they're in power or they're not in power. And if you feel like your people are not in power, then you, then the country is terrible and it stinks. And if your people are in power, then you know, you can say, as Michelle Obama did, that you feel, you know, proud of America for the first time in your life simply because your husband is winning the Democratic nomination in 2008. Again, Michelle Obama, growing up on the south side of Chicago, ends up like her brother at Princeton, ends up as a lawyer, ends up as a major American executive. This country really treated her shabbily. It's just awful what happened to her and and everybody that that she knew i the, none of this is to downgrade the difficulties of the united states the problems of the, the united states in the 21st century this the lack of social cohesion and the 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 lack of a of a sense of sort of national purpose these are real things and yes there's discrimination and yes there's racism and yes you know people are treated unequally and yes incomes are unequal and all of that the question is whether you know do the veil of ignorance game it remains the, cent- the central question of our time if you if you live under the veil of ignorance you're you're a, you're a, you're an unborn child and for some reason you can pick you, do, you don't have the veil of ignorance you can pick anywhere on earth to be born in 2021 you're an unborn black child you're an unborn gay black child is there anywhere else on earth you would you would you would prefer to be born than the united states I mean, I honestly, I honestly wonder if anyone could, you know, yeah, maybe you would want to be born in San Marino or, you know, one of those tiny European, you know, duchies because they're, they're little and they have a lot of money. And so the, the social welfare system is pretty good and all of that. But I, I, you know, if that's what you wanted, I can't imagine that. Even there, if you're Barry Jenkins, is there anywhere else on earth you want to live? Really? Really? I mean, 160 years ago, you're, you know, more than 160 years ago, your forebearers were violently and horribly brought to this country in a, in a stain that will, you know, blacken America for forever. And I don't mean blackened in the racial sense. I mean, in the, in the, in the moral sense. And, uh, that's a terrible thing, and we're paying for it. We pay for it in the fact that we can't get beyond or past it. But you know, th- this is this is one of the fissures that has opened up here, and the 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 opening of it in this year is another reason that it would be great to put this year in the rearview mirror. And the moral and the moral uh, deformations that the pandemic helped bring about. I mean, Abe. You know, it's funny, David. Uh, uh, not David Leonhardt. I'm sorry. Uh, Tom Edsel has a has his weekly column today, which is about the political consequences of wokeness uh, on the Democratic Party and whether or not there will be some. And it's a typically interesting, unusual piece with a lot of social science research and stuff like that. And this whole general question of are Republicans going to make hay out of wokeness in a way that will hurt hurt Democrats? And uh, what's interesting is that um, cynically, he says, Republicans are going to make hay out of it. Cynically, and uh, this seems to be something that, you know, when when people on liberals say wokeness is dangerous or bad, um, 
you know, they're kind of playing into Republican hands, uh, even if what they're really talking about is free speech and stuff like that, because Republicans are just using this as a way of, you know, tagging the Democratic Party with with extremism. But if you read this piece through, the question would be not why why are why are Republicans going to make hay out of this, but why aren't Democrats policing themselves and doing the work necessary to make sure that these ideas don't take hold and control their party? And the polling data that he cites actually tells you why, because a lot of Democrats believe this stuff. A lot of Democrats believe this stuff, and no Republicans believe this stuff. And you know what? The party split in this country is pretty even. We don't really know what it is because it shifts over time and every six months. And there are going to be a lot more Republicans in 2022 than there are in 2021 as people go to vote because people start identifying themselves in polls as Republican or whatever. Because um, that 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 shifts over time. But, um, you know, the parties are pretty, as I say, the party, we're, we're pretty close to parity. That wasn't true 40 years ago when there were twice as many Democrats as Republicans because the parties weren't as ideologically sorted as they are now. And, you know, 90% of, uh, 90% of Democrats think, uh, 90% of Republicans think something, that's a meaningful statistic. And you want if you want to ignore it because you live in a place, as we do, where it's a six-to-one Democratic majority, great, good, good luck to you. Like, good luck actually getting through to the rest of America. And uh, so wokeness, like... This was a this was a an elite phenomenon that became a mass phenomenon, right? That's one of the two or three plot lines of the last year and a half. Yeah, and the um, all the distortions it wrought um, throughout every level of the culture and our politics is, I think, um, one of the inescapable things that has been bequeathed to us um, by by this past year, um, and it's. It's 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 a nightmare that's that sort of lives on separate from the the actual nightmare of the pandemic and and you know regarding uh, uh, those Democrats or liberals who um, are uncomfortable with wokeness but have not uh, you know come out to to police their own um, I think the 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 salient fact was uncovered a year ago. Um, in some sort of polling research, uh, I think it was a Wall Street Journal, NBC poll, or my, actually might have been a Cato Institute poll now that I think about it, um, that 60-something percent of Americans were fearful uh, to voice their political opinion in the public square for fear of punishment. Um, might have been 62%. Um, that has not changed. If it's changed... It's gone in the it's 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 continued along those lines because the trends that made wokeness the um, sort of um, guiding star for all right thinking people, um, those continue that 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 keeps going and going and going. That wave is rolling. It has not crashed. You know, uh, we talked yesterday a little bit, though, you know, maybe not enough about this uh, disgraceful, horrible Michelle Goldberg column in the New York Times about how, you know, maybe uh, maybe people on the left should cool the anti-Semitism because it's really making them look bad. You know, 
vile, you know, uh, because, you know, look, Israel is horrible and monstrous and you're just uh, making it easier for Israel to, you know, to, to get its way and for evil right wingers to get their way by behaving this way. Worse um, to, to justify its own existence. Yeah. Right. So, um, uh, I had a deep point to make, and I've completely lost it here. In relation the headline to change. Oh no, the headline change. Yeah. Oh well, they 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 yes, they did change the headline after about eighteen hours of people going absolutely nuts over this. The headline said, "What was it, Christine? It was uh, oh, something about how anti-Semitic, yeah, violence, anti-Semitic violence is a gift, a gift to, to the right to the or right. something like that." Yeah. 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 Thanks. Thanks very much for that. It was that. changed to something hilariously generic, like yeah. on anti-Semitic violence. Yeah, right. it's like a term yeah. paper topic. <laughs> right. But but I would say this about you know where these this kind of dim understanding of the political consequences of of indulging in this extreme rhetoric and these extreme ideas is taking place in relation to crime. Right? There's so uh, people are staying around saying. There's been this massive increase in crime over the last 14 months. We see no evidence that it is going to abate. Uh, the The vanguard of the Democratic Party is opposed to the police, opposed to policing, wants to cut spending on law enforcement or defund law enforcement entirely. And the left, sensible political thinkers uh on on the liberal left like david shore and others are like you know this is really bad this is going to be bad this is bad for us this is going to look really bad uh because it's the concept but but where is the moral issue here where is the fact that crime is an evil what what, you know i'm sorry that it may hurt you politically why don't you do something about that then? Because the problem with it isn't that it's going to be politically damaging. It's that people are getting killed and robbed and injured and neighborhoods and cities are being made slowly unlivable. And you and you have nothing to say about that. They do. But, but, they, but Jen, Jen uh, I'll just very briefly, I mean, the, the point about how bad it's gotten in terms of the, the speaking out as, uh, about crime on a more, as a moral issue. Jen Psaki was asked about this, uh, I don't know, three days ago. She can't say the word crime. She says community violence. It's community violence. Or gun violence. Yeah. If if a drunk driver kills someone, do we call it car violence? Right. So forget, forget, it's become the new terrorism. You know, there was a point where you couldn't call anything terrorism because that was- Man-made disasters. Yeah, because that was- (laughs) Man-made disasters. Right, because that that was workplace disasters, right? Because that was Islamophobic to say anything, to to, to say the word terrorism. That, That is crime. That is crime in the woke frame to say crime is racist. And it's also it's also there structurally, there's a real effort underway, not just to eliminate or, or downgrade law enforcement's ability to do its job, but to redefine what crime even is. We see it on the extremes already in places like San Francisco, which is a Boudin and other progressive prosecutors uh, who refuse to even prosecute things that have traditionally been thought of as crime and have been on the books legally as as crimes that, that deserve punishment. They simply, it's not that they changed the law, though there are some efforts underway for some of those things. It's simply that the person who the state has given the power to prosecute criminals refuses to do his or her job. And this is happening in a lot of cities with very high crime rates right now, Philadelphia, uh, all around. And people should keep their eye on that because that's one of those things where cynically, uh, the tool of sort of woke philosophies about incarceration 
are used cynically by people for power reasons. Not it has nothing to do with with concern for the underclass or concern for people who aren't white. It has everything to do with amassing power. You know, I'm just thinking about this briefly from the perspective of <clears throat> New York City and, and its predicament. And we, you know, we've talked about how there's this real underserved market for optimism in this country. I've talked about it a lot. Polls suggest that people are actually kind of optimistic about their future, and they get no reinforcement of that from the political class on either side of the aisle. And from New York City's perspective, which is in something of a whole, um, the mayoral race has really focused on on um, crime and the just the mitigation of it. Uh, they can't talk about it in anything other than, you know, root causes, because this is all going back to this sort of progressive ethos about how these, you know, social conditions precipitate crime. And we must address the social conditions that we would address anyway, in any other condition, you know, we, this is all part of the same program that we have anyway. And you had um, Cynthia Nixon saying the other day, she, she ran for, go- for governor of New York. She was on one of the most popular New York TV shows. She's a New York figure. And she comes out on Twitter and, and sort of evinces the very far, farthest, far left idea of this of this uh, crime mitigation effort, which is that you know you should just kind of back off prosecuting theft because these people, you know, if they're stealing, it's because they need it. And this is something that Alexandria Ocasio Cortez has said. And the the well, what she said, there, she said, she said it's even more interesting than that because it wasn't just prosecuting. She said. I went to my local Walgreens and they're keeping goods, products, uh, they're locking them up now behind, you know, you have to call somebody to bring them over, presumably because people are stealing them. And it's like, well, why should Walgreens, you know, people are suffering. They don't have money. So Walgreens should sort of let them walk out of the store without paying. It's not even that they shouldn't be prosecuted. It is that it is that private businesses should should allow people to come into their stores and shoplift because that's the socially responsible thing to do. Right. So what is the psychology there? The psychology there is that the end is nigh, is that this is all done and it's time to divvy up the spoils and take what you can while you can. And this is something that you're seeing from the political class too, from crime to the the plague of unlet office space, um, half a dozen other issues that the, the city and its public officials lack the imagination to engage in the kind of reinvention that was the city's chief innovation, that was its primary uh, source of uh, of identity, and why it emerged as the capital of the world in the 20th century, because it had this capacity to tear down and reinvent and reimagine itself and execute that vision in a spectacular fashion, in a rapid fashion. And that sort of engine has just ground to a halt, and there's no appetite for any sort of imagination on the part of the political class. And I wish they had somebody in the Republican Party who was capable of engaging in that too, but they too perceive themselves to be under siege and that you know what they have has to be, uh, you know, they have to rally around it and protect it while they can because it's all going away. And you know, I don't think that reflects I, the general public's view of things. But I, I think this is a good point, Noah, because I think this gets back to this question of how things, what people saying we can't go back to the way things were. Um, I think behind that, there's a sort of secret dark wish to, to stay in a broken place um, because everything's possible in a broken place and you can, you can have your brand of chaos in a broken place and we can have people walking out of stores with, with items and, and do whatever we want. And the way things were was a, was a way of reining in the chaos. Um, sorry, that is a necessary element of, of, of any uh, society. And this, this, we can't go back to the way things were, 
is is a sort of no man's land where anything goes and and there's there's some sort of sense of opportunity in 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 that very dark idea and the sense of no limits right there's a yep. one thing that the political class a lesson it learned unfortunately was that for many of them they could exercise a great degree of authority and power over the public in a way they never had the opportunity to to do before because of a crisis. A lot of them don't want to give up that power. I think there's another element of the wokeness here too, which is someone sort of jokingly, but I think it this should be taken seriously, jokingly said all of these white elite, you know, particularly media culture types who are always calling for people to resign because of they were they were not appropriately woke. Why don't we have a, a woke resignation movement? So if you're a white dude at the New York Times with a lot of power, shouldn't you by this logic resign and give your spot to a person of color? Like they do not actually have the courage of their conviction while demanding the heads of those they, they judge to be too uh, not appropriately woke enough. So it, again, it's, it's wokeness is one of the most cynical tools developed in, in recent memory. I mean, it makes kind of political correctness seem calm and easygoing. And, right. and it, it's a tool that can be wielded by the right as well. We should, we should acknowledge that it, it's not just a weapon of the left. Um, and it would be very bad if the right started using it with the zeal that we've seen the left use it. Um, you know, when Bill de Blasio became mayor uh, uh, in uh, 2013, um, you know, unexpectedly, uh, in part because uh, there was no one really in the race to challenge him, and Anthony Weiner was would have probably won if he weren't a psychopath. Um, he becomes mayor. Uh, he he is a very peculiar political figure because he evinces no love for the town, you know, classic thing about uh, local politicians is that they're kind of locally nationalistic, right? They love the sports teams. They love the food. They have every Jersey politician has his diner, right? Right, Noah? Like every, there are 10,000 politicians in New Jersey and each of them basically is assigned a diner. Like we, like you're in Hufflepuff or Slytherin, you have your diner and that's where you sit and people and you do your work and people see you there. That's a part of local nationalism. And New York City is a very, very locally nationalistic place. Long before the Frank Sinatra song and all of that, you know, it had its it had so nationalistic and so big that it had three baseball teams and people had their local rivalries and no one hated the Yankees more than a Dodgers fan and no one hated the Dodgers more than a Yankees fan. Locally nationalistic, but all based in love, right? And And here was this, the first mayor I can think of in the New York City history, and maybe in the history of the annals of mayors in general, who seemed to have no feeling for the town that he lived in. And he wasn't actually, he's not a New York native. He came here as a, came here in his 20s. Um, and, and there was something very striking about this because in his weird uh, separation from the city, you get some sense of what it means not to love your country. I, I mean, it, it, this is a, a very broad, but, or the idea is, look, this is a city. It has a power structure. The power structure has, according to him, eliminated the possibilities for the people that I like and the people who voted for me, right? It's a city for the rich, not for the poor. It's a city that functions this way, not that way. And rather than say, okay, I'm going to do whatever I can to improve services and conditions for the people who voted me in. That's really not quite what he did. What he more did was say, I'm not going to provide services and things for these other people. Screw them. They're already rich. I don't care. 
their neighborhoods, I'm not going to plow. I'm going to, I'm not going to insist that their neighborhoods get plowed. I'm going to make sure that other neighborhoods get plowed before their neighborhood get plowed, as opposed to being a normal, you know, in a snowstorm, as opposed to being a normal leader who would say, everybody gets plowed. Like, let's hire another hundred people, you know, in a mer- to do the snow. What's our snowplow plan? Where's the map? Show me the map so I can see if the routes are good and efficient and you're going to get the streets plowed. That's not what he did. What he wanted to do was reward his cronies with sweetheart contracts and stuff like that, make sure that he removed the imprimatur from the business class of, of, of New York City, which, after all, wh- whether or not it's unfair and all this, provides an enormous – New York City has a $100 billion budget – provides an enormous amount of that revenue, not only in personal income taxes, but in transaction fees on Wall Street and all of that. Most of that money, which doesn't go to the rich – in terms of services and running things and all of that. So this was a new kind of politics, and it, it, it reflects what politics, which is everything sucks, this country stinks. So there are two things to do, one of which is punish punish some people who, you know, we think it's not fair what's happened to them. And then just basically, like, try to rearrange things in the best way you can to help others. But eh, you know what? It's not even worth it because who cares? Like, who the hell cares? I'm just going to go to my gym. I'm going to smoke my bong and I'm going to, you know, sit there whining because Andrew Cuomo attacks me. And this is woke politics in its fundamental sense. Like the classic liberal urban politician was a reformer who said, Evil interests have taken control of public goods. We need to clear them out so the city can run better because they're running it badly. And it's not like de Blasio said, you know what, they run the city badly. He said, things here are not equitable. Things here are not fair. So I'm just going to make sure that, you know, somehow the only really way to make it fair in the classic Marxist formulation is to pull things down from the top while I'm not competent to do anything for the bottom. And and that's woke politics before before George Floyd in some ways. And now it's now it's woke politics in general. It's like, you know what? Kill the SAT, kill special schools, kill the because it's not right, but not like I have anything better. I don't have anything better. I'm just going to destroy that system because you know what? Everything stinks. <clears throat> Back to the city perspective. It's sort of the final triumph of the rest of the country that has always regarded New York city as something sort of foreign, not like the rest of the of the country. It was right. something that was profligate and weird and multicultural and not reflective of the general American ethos. And it was always assaults on the city from without. Assaults on the city from the New Deal, which robbed it of, uh, of uh, income and spread it throughout the country. Assaults on the city in the Ford administration, you know, when they when they wouldn't bail out the the city's debt, and the city always responded with a middle finger and a resolve to to reinvent itself and create a new condition that would rival and parallel its critics uh, for the rest of the country. And that's that ethos is gone. Look, I grew up here. I lived as my as a teenager in in the 1970s when everything was pretty bad. You know, I was mugged four times before I was 14. The subways were covered in graffiti. The streets were sorted. Everything was terrible. 
and yet you love this place. You had it, it, it pulsed with energy. It had your teams. It's where you were from. You love where you're from. You're really annoyed and upset that people have this negative opinion of it. When I went to camp in the Midwest, I would get into fist fights at camp, people who would somehow insult New York. I mean, not real fist fights, fake fist fights, but whatever. Um, you love it, right? And 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 you love it. Spike Lee loves it. You know, Spike Lee, who is a couple of years older than I am. Spike, every, everybody loves it, right? De Blasio represents a new edge in this kind of urban politics in which you don't love it because it's it's not it's not giving you everything you want from it you you know you you don't love it you don't love america because 100 and you know because 240 years ago or 200 we wrote we wrote uh uh uh, the constitution is not a perfect document you know you know everything is terrible and you withdraw your affect from the place you live. And that is a very peculiar attitude. It's not normal. It's not human nature. It's a violation of human nature. And it gives you a pain in the back. And that's why I got to talk to you about the X chair. You know, the X chair, that luxury supercar of office chairs I've been telling you about with that dynamic variable lumbar support that provides you with incredible support for your lower back and the uh, XHMT technology that provides heat and massage goes right to your core, gives you energy, strengthens you, and makes it possible for you to sit and enjoy your work while you're doing it, as opposed to that old desk chair that really, really, you know, left you leaving feeling crappy, you know, after a day's work. Um, I look forward to spending hours sitting in this ultimate therapeutic massager. So will you. You won't believe the X-Chair difference until you feel the X-Chair difference for yourself. And it's now on sale for $100 off. Go to xchaircommentary.com now. That's the letter X, the word chair, commentary.com. Or call 1-844-4X-Chair. X-Chair has a 30-day guarantee of complete comfort. And you can finance your purchase for as little as 30 bucks a month. Go to xchaircommentary.com now and use code XWheels for free X-Wheel blade casters. That's xchaircommentary.com. Calm. Um, so uh, we've now diagnosed all the ills of the world. So that's what we did today because we didn't know what to talk about. But uh, honestly, I'd like to ask our listeners uh, if you want to email us at podcast uh, uh, at uh, uh, what is the address? Podcast at commentary at commentarymagazine dot com. Just let us know. You know how you how you feel about the how you feel about the podcast and uh, on a daily basis you know if we if we get a strong endorsement we will take that as a we will take that as uh as the permission structure to keep going there are various things we could do we could shorten the podcast although the truth is if we have two or three ads which we don't have today it's it, it would be very disruptive to go short because you know also, I'm sorry. It's not the ads. We're all just really long-winded, and we get all wound up, and it's yeah. hard to shorten our. I'm long-winded. <laughs> you guys are. You guys are like Hemingway compared to me. <laughs> you know, I'm. I'm like uh, Abe. You're muted. I Abe just, was just I doing just, the silent movie yes. thing on the on the on the Squadcast video here. I was going to say to the listeners who write in, um, please be prudent and careful because we are very receptive to your requests, and I know if you request 
things that are kind of out there, we will have conversations about the possibility of doing them. So go, go yeah. easy on me. Yeah, go easy on Abe because, you know, he's very sensitive. Yeah. He's very, very, very sensitive. Um, uh, anyway, so uh, I guess if we don't have anything more to ponderously uh, offer discussion. Can we talk a little bit? I just want to talk. Go briefly. ahead. Good. Go. Talk to face with the, the insanity that has become of the Republican Party. Um just touching base on the GOP a couple of weeks ago, they got rid of, uh, you know, Liz Cheney and leadership. All their problems are resolved. Uh, what the, the ostensible premise of that was that she just can't let go of the past. It was garbage at the time. It is clearly garbage. Now, all the Republican parties Trump wing wants to do is talk about the past, which is the case with historical revisionists. They derive their identity from a particular moment in time, and they do not ever want to move on from it. This audit in Arizona, which is a laughing stock, seems to be imploding on itself. The group that was conducting it left. It's going to be another group conducting it. A judge has allowed some other group to conduct this sort of semi-audit, even though they don't have access to ballots. And it, it, you know, it's just going to it's going to be reinforcing a, a conviction that they already have. Same, a similar thing is happening in Georgia. The party is attached to this idea, and. Um, you know, there's this brewing uh, vote this week, I think, probably this week or next, closures filing, I think, today, on the idea of uh, creating this January 6th commission. 35 Republicans bucked uh, leadership to vote in favor of it in the House. Mitch McConnell is lobbying against it. But um, at least one senator, uh, Lisa Murkowski of Alaska, is going to vote in favor of it, despite Mitch McConnell's Susan rejection. Collins also, I believe. Is she? And Mitt Romney. Yeah. Last I heard, that wasn't the case. Honestly. Really? Oh, I thought she said on Monday that she was voting for it. Uh, maybe I it could be wrong. I completely okay. could be wrong. I don't know one way or the other. Um, but there is some stirring about this sort of thing. And it seems to me that there's no other way for the party to move on uh, in the absence of a thorough investigation of this thing, whether or not, uh, you know, it's, they say, oh, it's just going to be a political. Well, they they don't care about that. They like politics. They like the politics of this. They want the politics of this. They don't want their illusion shattered. And the party's um, more cowardly, craven members don't want to shatter that illusion either. Um, and it is desperately necessary from a psychological perspective to force Republicans to confront the reality that they so desperately want to avoid. I, uh, I believe that a commission uh, properly organized, and I believe, by the way, that the negotiations between Congressman Katko and the Democrats prove very fruitful in terms of how this would be organized in a way that would be fair, uh, could be, could be very positive. Um, I, I don't know that it could change a single mind anymore and nor should it. It doesn't have to, it's not going to, it's not going to convince people who don't want to be convinced. What it needs to do is establish a stigma around the ideas that are being promulgated here by a fringe that perceives itself to be not very fringy because it's being reinforced by people who just hope that it'll just disappear on its own. That'll just go away. Um, they want it to go away. They don't know how to make it go away. And I don't either. And it probably never will. But what we can do is anathematize this, the, the kind of things that are being said in public now so that they're reserved only for settings that they don't have to feel like they're going to be criticized over it. It needs to be socially unacceptable 
to say the kind of things that they think they think can get away with. Yeah, but according to whom? That's the problem. The problem is who defines social acceptability. We're, Look, well, we go through the process to establish. Ted Cruz, Ted Cruz, and Mitch McConnell and Kevin McCarthy and various other people said things in the wake of the of the January sixth insurrection that if they said them today would have them like cast out into you know out of Eden. I mean. That's what's interesting is that in the immediate aftermath of, of, of January 6th, when everyone w- was fresh in everybody's mind what had happened, the general thing was this was a horror, an unprecedented horror that must never uh, be repeated. And, and, and Donald Trump bore some responsibility for it. And this is not the way we do things in America, and it can't be allowed to continue. And we're now five months uh, after it. And they're all acting like, well, yeah, look, it wasn't so bad, really. Was it really that bad? Was it really so bad that hundreds of people stormed the Capitol building in the United States? I mean, government was not really at, at risk, even though, you know, I mean, who knows? They could have taken Mike Pence hostage. I, I don't know. They could have they could have lit the ballots on fire or the the electoral college, you know, tallies on fire in a way that would have created a potential constitutional crisis. But nah, it's all right. It's fine. Whatever. Look. You know, they were just tourists or whatever it is you want to say. That's the amazing thing to me is that uh, it used to be, and this is some difference in the way everything has gone in American public life in the last 30 years, that people like just bent themselves into pretzels not to contradict things that they had just said because it was understood that their their sort of like integrity was their public integrity was on the line if they said x one day and not x the other and that no longer obtains that no longer matters people can say x and then they can say y and no one holds them accountable except their enemies right i mean except the people who then gleefully take it up and say aha you see they're being they're hypocrites and then they make their their friend but they don't care because they somehow see the act of 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 not having integrity almost as a form of um, political association. It's like they're they're they do this as a as a dog whistle to people to say who you are and what you want of me is more important than my own integrity, and that's why you should like me because I'm willing to sell my soul to you. Right, and yet they have established vice as a virtue, and that's toxic. It is cannot but, be allowed to stand. But who is it cannot gonna, be allowed to be pushed back on? But men of good conscience, John. Yeah, who men are women the, of good conscience? Yeah, who are these people? Let's I mean, find them and no, let's but, establish that. Let's okay. establish who is on one side of this ledger and who is not. A time for choosing is upon us. But you see, that's where, in in interesting fashion, maybe the Republican demands for an enlargement of the commission to feature other issues would be important because it's very basically only one ox is going to be gored here right so it's fantastic you're going to have all the democrats fumfering around talking about the horrors of insurrection and everything like that and on the other hand as jonah goldberg said yesterday you have stacy abrams the person who created the permission structure for the delegitimization of elections going on morning joe yesterday morning and saying we can't allow anyone to call into question the integrity of our elections. Stacey Abrams, who lost her race by 50,000 The governor votes. of Georgia. <laughs> yeah, the true, the, 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 the true governor of Georgia. 
that's what I'm talking about. So like you're going to get Republicans like called on the carpet and Democrats are it's like. OK, so the, okay. But, but, but the Republicans should go on board with this and then uh, argue the same thing that we've seen a lot of Democrats arguing over the last year with, about all the riots and destruction, which is just give all those guys restorative justice. Right. We're seeing I mean, all the people who toppled monuments and, and you know, attacked federal courthouses across the country are all giving restorative justice. Right. They're not doing time. Most a, a lot of people have been arrested already by by uh, federal officials for what happened on January 6th, which is good. I, I am not a fan of the way that restorative justice has been interpreted and practiced in this country. Um, I think it's I think it's a scam. I think it's a way to let some people off the hook while not applying it equally to others. I think it's good that these people are being found and prosecuted. That should continue. Um, but I do think that if it's going to be politicized, I mean, that that was the reason that there was a kind of, uh, I think, reprehensible but understandable equivocation on the part of the Republicans saying, well, if you're going to investigate this, then we have to investigate all this other stuff. No, you don't, because it's different. But what is the principle? Like, how do we punish wrongdoing in this way? Is it unique or is it not? Is it like 9-11 or is it not? I mean, th- these are questions that actually the commission would force the public to confront and hash out. So I agree with no. I mean, I think it is, it does force the hand of all of those who are trying to equivocate of those who are trying to, to rewrite history. And that is true for those on the left as well as the right. I just think we can't say it, X or Y or Z cannot be allowed and it must be shamed and all of that because the, I agree with you, uh, except the story of our time is that nobody is shamed and nothing is disallowed. Um, and the only people who are ultimately disallowed from things are are these weird, you know, I would say these kind of weird liberals who um, who give in to the woke crowd and and kind of you know slink off with it, publish apologies, and then slink off with their tails between their legs, like James Bennett and Donald McNeil of the New York Times and all of that. And why is that? Why is what happened to them? McNeil hasn't slunk off with his tail between he his did. legs. He did. He, he is publishing. He's publishing no, no, some of after. the best stuff he's ever published in no, his career, and after. everything he publishes, and everything he publishes is a mark of abject shame that he forces the people who forced him out of his job to confront I on a semi-regular so, basis. I totally disagree. His refusal with you. to go away is quite admirable. I disagree and has been with you. Service. I disagree with you because he issued an apology before he got fired. He did the thing that he was told to do, and then he got fired anyway. So now it's like, well, what the hell? Like, uh, yeah, I'm not sling. I, I did, you know, I, I I followed your dictates. Anyway, I'm not going to defend or attack Donald McNeil. That's not really the important point. All I'm saying is, like, uh, it's clear. Uh, nobody is shamed out of anything. And if you're shamed out of things, then you are uh, surrendering. And it, I wish it were otherwise. But it just doesn't seem to work that way. You know, look at Ralph Northam. Look at I, I look at uh, uh, his, his lieutenant governor. Look at everybody. I don't know. It's uh, that's the world we live in. Like you're, you, you want something. You want us to be living in a different world. I wish we did, but I don't think we do. And we can take up what world we live in again tomorrow. Thank you, Noah. Thank you, Christine. Thank you, Abe. For for all of you, I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning.